You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 409. Also a great cleaner. But maybe, just maybe, this episode will help you to clean up your theology. I hope, I hope, if I handle it well, if I am a help to you in that regard, uh, you can you, you can call it uh, what you will. But this is episode four hundred nine. <laughs> I am here, home. Uh, it's a quiet house. I'm working today. My family has gone to church, just left. They're on their way. And I work every other weekend. I covered last weekend as well for uh, my alternate vacation time. Uh, I'm the person that the field technicians and IOC technicians call into when they're having issues with systems integration. So I have to stay close by the phone, close by the computer in case they need me for anything as they need me for anything through the day. And then I have reports that I'm supposed to run through the weekend as well for missing data. But that aside, and as a uh, close approximation of what we would be doing at church, where I'm going this morning, I'm going to talk with you in this episode about None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God by Matthew Barrett, I just finished it up this morning, started it this week, and I have a lot to say about it. But first, I've got 10 copies of Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, A Refutation of Liberalism by Groen von Prinster that just arrived in the mail yesterday. The first 10 listeners of this podcast who contact me with a commitment to reading and reviewing this book or else making a donation to the Reformed Conservative, will receive a free copy of the book. If you're close by, I'll just hand it to you. If you need me to mail it to you, I will be happy to. But this is the first time this work by Groen von Prinster has been available in English. It was just recently translated, and the translation was commissioned by my friends and compatriots at Refcon Press which also, if you're familiar with the Reformed Conservative, is an imprint of TRC. Check out thereformedconservative.org for more information. But real briefly, from the back cover of Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, Groen van Prinster, 1801-1876, was a prominent leader of the Dutch Evangelical Revival, a renowned parliamentarian, and leader of the Christian political party, the Anti-Revolutionary Party. As a mentor to Abraham Kuyper and grandfather of Neo-Calvinism, Grohn's polemics have influenced many Reformed thinkers around the world. Grohn is mainly known today for his magnum opus, Unbelief and Revolution, which expands upon Edmund Burke's conservative insights. And I quote, So definitely check out this book, you should throw it in your cart and 
order a copy, or you should contact me if you would like a copy. I've got 10 on hand. The first 10 listeners to contact me, I will be happy to hook you up. I would love it if you would both read and review the book and also consider making a donation to the Reformed Conservative. But moving on, the task at hand, the subject at hand, the main topic, none greater, the undomesticated attributes of God by Matthew Barrett. From Goodreads, the book summary, and I quote, For too long, Christians have domesticated God, bringing him down to our level as if he is a God who can be tamed. But he is a God who is high and lifted up, the creator rather than the creature, someone than whom none greater can be conceived. If God is the most perfect, supreme being, infinite and incomprehensible, then certain perfect-making attributes must be true of him. Perfections like aseity, simplicity, immutability, impassibility, and eternity shield God from being crippled by creaturely limitations. At the same time, this all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise God accommodates himself, exhibiting perfect holiness, mercy, and love as he makes known who he is and how he will save us. The attributes of God show us exactly why God is worthy of worship. There is none like him. Join Matthew Barrett as he rediscovers these divine perfections and finds himself surprised by the God he thought he knew. End quote. Great summary. Very tidy. Very nice. Very nice uh, summary there of the book. Also from Goodreads, the author summary, Matthew Barrett, and I quote, MDiv, PhD, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the Executive Editor of Credo Magazine. He is the author of numerous books, including God's Word Alone, 40 Questions About Salvation, Reformation Theology, John Owen on the Christian Life, and Salvation by Grace. He is also the host of the Credo Podcast, where he talks with fellow theologians about the most important doctrines of the faith. He lives in Kansas City. And I quote, end quote. Now, you might be wondering, why, Garrett, did you read this book? What drew you to it? Well, for one, it was recommended to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. As a quick aside, besides just, again, my renewed appreciation for J.P., as an aside, my cousin Micah Hirschberger, with whom uh, I formerly, in another life years ago, wrote uh, in earnest at On The Rock's blog, he was in town this week, stopped in with his son James, and visited with us for an afternoon and an evening. We had pizza, good conversation, coffee, all that. But it was funny because I mentioned in passing my neighbor, J.P. Chavez, and he's like, you know, it's funny, from listening to your podcast, I almost think that that's his name now, like J.P. Two Houses Down or something. J.P. Chavez Two Houses Down, like it's a Indian name or something. Uh, but in all seriousness, J.P. Chavez... Great guy, does happen to live two houses down, and great recommendation here for this book. But besides his recommending this book, 
Why? Why this book in particular? I get a fair number of recommendations from people on lots of books. I don't read them all or haven't read them all yet. If I had all of time, which I hope to, I don't know if I'll still want to read all these books uh, in eternity, but maybe I would read all these books that are recommended to me. But this one in particular, honestly, I read because I recently read a different book that was recommended, A Certain Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And I'll be just totally above board with you. I know that Gentle and Lowly has gotten a lot of positive reviews, but I was really, really bothered by a number of claims and arguments and a certain thread that I feel like runs through the book subtly but surely. And all the same, I was bothered as I'm reading Gentle and Lowly, but I couldn't quite put my finger on why for several of the specific things that I read. It just didn't set well. They didn't seem like they were quite true, but I didn't quite have language for why that would be. And it's not enough just to be uncomfortable. It's not enough to just say, well, you know, I don't like it. I don't like it. You know, like a three-year-old not eating their vegetables. Well, yeah, you don't like your vegetables, but they're good for you. And also this is what's for dinner. So eat your vegetables, please. Oh, but I like ice cream. Uh, but ice cream is not for dinner. Meatloaf and vegetables are what's for dinner. Nevertheless, the more I grappled with what was bothering me in Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, the more I realized I needed to figure out whether the problem was me or the problem was the book or the problem was both. Because you could definitely have both, right? It's not an either or. Just because you can find things wrong with the book, that does not mean there is nothing the matter with you. Both can be true at the same time, an important thing to remember. But I think I'm on good, solid footing here. Ortland himself clearly agrees that how we believe about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we believe about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is extremely important. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the book, I presume. But he proposes some pretty radical changes, sometimes very much in passing and sometimes very subtly. And I don't know whether it's because he's just not a very good writer and he's just not communicating clearly what he really thinks and what he really believes or whether he really thinks and believes some at best heterodox, at worst, uh, entirely unorthodox, borderline heretical things about God which he then in turn wants us to believe as well. But whenever, whenever someone wants to propose a radical change to the way we think about God, we should be diligent. We should be diligent. We should tread lightly. That goes for me. If you're listening to my podcast and I propose a radical change in how you view God, you should be diligent and you should tread lightly and you should be really, really careful. You should double check my math. Don't take my word for it. Go to the scriptures, see whether these things are so. Imitate the Bereans, search the scriptures, see whether the things being claimed are so. 
Also, it can be helpful to take a look at theology and church history. You know, you've got to be careful because church history is a mixed bag. That's the point. <laughs> That's, you, you would not have these creeds, the Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed. You wouldn't have these creeds if the doctrine of the church had never been challenged, questioned, or uh, needed closer examination and shoring up in certain areas. You just wouldn't. So throughout church history, as you're studying it, and even in the present, when you're reading theology, you have to take care with those guys throughout history and even in the present, because sometimes they're not correct either, right? But if you dig in, if you look at the creeds, and if you test the spirits, and if you search the scriptures, I think you will find that a great deal of sobriety used to accompany these questions, which doesn't necessarily so much anymore in all circles. There does seem to be more of a tendency to keep it as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his introduction to the Sermons on the Mount sermon series, there's a tendency for our faith and practice to be characterized by superficiality. And I think part of the reason for that is we just do not take, I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones, we don't take the Bible seriously. We don't really get in and study it to be transformed by it. Instead, we come to it with some very clever theories and lo and behold, we find confirmation everywhere we look because that's all we were interested in seeing, right? But don't do that. Don't do that. Humbly submit yourself to the good Lord and he will make straight your paths. He will raise you up. He will bless you. He promises that in his word. Ask him for wisdom as James talks about in the New Testament and he will give it to you without finding fault. Along those lines, I think that this book was helpful to me in finding language for my discomfort on several points that run throughout Dane Ortland's book. And also too, I mean, from the standpoint of, regardless of whether I agree with Ortland or not on the thrust of his argument or his language, his diction, his writing style, very, very sentimental, regardless of whether I agree with Ortland, I can appreciate this about Gentle and Lowly, that it inspired me to dig deeper into the scriptures and also into church history and also into theology and to be more intentional about what I believe. I can appreciate that. Whether I agreed with Ortland or I didn't agree with Ortland at the end of the day, I, I am glad for reading Gentle and Lowly and being provoked by it. I think that's a good thing. I think that God can use that in my life, in my heart, in my mind, in yours also. So the table of contents, just to give you like a quick rundown, because there's a lot here and this is, this is heady stuff. Similar to James A. Dolezal's All That Is In God, which I also read for the same reason uh, this past week. Chapter one, can we know the essence of God? Boy, there's a question. Can we know the essence of God? Atheists, agnostics, 
more so agnostics than atheists, but both and, will say, no, we can't even know that he exists, and unless you can prove to me that he exists, I'm going to have a default position of not believing that he even exists. But even Christians can take the incomprehensibility, which is the technical term, if you will, the incomprehensibility of God too far to where they become know-nothings. And that's not good. We don't become saved by having a legalistic memorization scheme for good doctrine. Well, because I can quote the historic creeds by heart, I'm in. Oh, because I can quote the scriptures fluently, I'm in. Oh, because I know what these various doctrines are, understand all mysteries, I'm a Christian. No. But neither, on the other hand, do we say the doctrine is of no account, that we can know nothing about God. That is not correct, and that is not balanced. But that was a good chapter, a helpful chapter. Yes, God is incomprehensible, and yet he is able to be comprehended or understood insofar as he is able to communicate clearly about himself and has chosen to do so. What he has chosen to communicate, he is able to communicate clearly. He is also able to make us able to understand what it is that he has communicated about himself, including the fact that he is ultimately incomprehensible. Chew on that one, Teddy. Like I said, Chapter two, can we think God's thoughts after him? And this one dealt more with the question of how we as creatures should and more to the point should not talk about the creator. Chapter three, is God the perfect being? Why an infinite God has no limitations. Chapter four, does God depend on you? Aseity. And this one, this one's really, really important because actually this does come up in Dane Ortland's book where he says in passing that Jesus needs us to open ourselves up to him. In fact, Dane Ortland says that's all Jesus needs. But to say that that's at all what Jesus needs is not careful. We are refuting, if we hold on to that, we are refuting God's aseity and saying that God depends on us. No, we are the contingent beings. God is the only truly self-sustaining, independent, and necessary being, whoever has been or is now or ever will be. So that's a big chapter to take a look at and to think about. It might, as Matthew Barrett points out, it might feel good for a little bit to say that God needs us, but The longer you think about it, the longer you really chew on that one, the less comforting it actually is. Because if God needs us, then how are we supposed to run to him, right? If we pity God because he's just, oh man, he really needs us to come through for him. That is not a God who can comfort, who can save. In fact, that becomes a God we need to save because he needs something from us. No, He doesn't need anything from us. That is the whole idea of this doctrine of aseity. He is self-sufficient, entirely, perfectly, totally, without exception. Now, another chapter that was very helpful was chapter five, 
dealing with the question of, is God made up of parts? Is God made up of parts? And you might think to yourself, well, then what about the Trinity, right? There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That seems like parts to me. Not so fast. Go back again to chapter one, incomprehensibility. The historic position of the church is not for no reason to say that God is incomprehensible. Like the Athanasian Creed says it very thoroughly. (laughs) The Father, incomprehensible. The Son, incomprehensible. And the Holy Spirit, incomprehensible. Also, there are not three uncreated nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, totally one. And as Sinclair Ferguson has described it, I think helpfully, what's one times one times one? It's one. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one. The Lord our God is one. As the Shema Israel says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Chapter six. This is also an important one, a really important one. Does God change? Or, to put the technical term, the theological term, is God immutable? Now, we're mutable. You and I, we are mutable. So you're listening to this podcast episode right now. You could absolutely mute this podcast and by extension me. That means I am mutable. If God shows up and wants to talk to you, you can't mute him. You can't, you, yeah, there's no stopping it. Like he, he will say what he wants to say and he will be heard. But more than just whether we hear or we don't hear, the fact that God does not change is absolutely undeniable. He does not change. Now, this gets tricky because we read in the scriptures things like with the story of the flood, that God regretted that he had made man. Well, what is that about, right? He changed his mind? No, and this is tricky. This is, again, go back to chapter one, incomprehensibility. We are finite creatures trying to comprehend as much as we can a infinite God. And so God is essentially using baby talk with us. He is speaking to us at our level. That is also, by the way, the incarnation in a nutshell, but more besides That's not all. And yet, the fact that God seems as though he changes sometimes, that is confusing for many of us over the centuries, over the millennia. God does not change. And yet, because he's speaking to us, and we are made of parts, and we are dependent, and we do change, and we do grow, and we do mature, and we do learn things, and we do gain competencies and capabilities and realizations and things like that. He's speaking to us about himself with what we can handle at a given time. If we were to get the full experience of all of his attributes, it would destroy us. It would absolutely, we, we just can't, we can't handle it. We can't handle it. Also, too, the importance of God not changing, like he says, he doesn't change. We should take his word for it. If he says he doesn't change, he doesn't change. Okay, (laughs) that's enough. (laughs) But if he does change, if he were to be a changing being, then how would we rest in his promises? How would we derive any comfort or any assurance of salvation when he makes a promise? If he just changes his mind and he doesn't keep his promise, well, there's no comfort in that at all. 
There's no, there's no peace in that. Chapter seven, does God have emotions? Now this is a, this is a tricky one. And I still like, this is one of a few chapters that I'm just still scratching my head about. I don't, some of these I understand better because I'm more familiar with. This one is one that I, I'm, I'm going to have to wrestle with because I just don't, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> Chapter seven, does God have emotions? His impassibility is the theological term. Another way to look at this too is, does God have passions? Now, the scriptures describe God as having emotions. And yet, is that again, just a kind of baby talk? Because that's all we can understand. God's putting it in terms that will make something close to sense for us. And yet, is that something that we should understand in anything approaching, anything whatsoever approaching a one-to-one ratio where we transpose the way we experience emotions onto God and humanize God to the point of creating an idol of sorts instead of believing what our creator has said about himself and his word, the totality of what he has said, the whole counsel of God. That's an important one I personally am still wrestling with. Again, see chapter one about God's incomprehensibility. Is God in time? Chapter eight, timeless eternity. Same also here. I'm still just, I. it boggles my mind. I don't understand it. I don't. Quite frankly, I don't even know where to start in explaining this one, so I'm just going to move on. Chapter 9, is God bound by space? Omnipresence. Now, this one's interesting because some have subscribed to two very erroneous misunderstandings of God's omnipresence. One, they have said that God is the universe, and the universe is God, which is known as pantheism. The universe is God, and God is the universe, and sometimes you'll hear very new-agey people talk about, the universe wanted this, or the universe wanted that for me. No, God is not the universe. Again, we need to understand the distinction between creator and creation. God is not the universe. The universe is also is not God. God created the universe, but the universe is dependent on God. God is the necessary being. Also too, another error, which is kind of a in-between, between pantheism and monotheism, is known as panentheism. Panentheism. And essentially what this one is, is that God is in everything. Everything is in God and God is in everything and it's dangerously close to pantheism. It's a little bit different, but dangerously close. That's not what saying God is omnipresent actually means. Omnipresence for God is not either of those two things. He is present everywhere, but he is separate and distinct from his creation. And it is very important that we know that and that we understand that or else we will not be able to make sense of the scriptures. And if we hold to a pantheistic or panentheistic uh, notion of God with regards to his omnipresence, that demonstrates that either A, we have not been reading our Bible uh, or B, we have been coming to our Bible with a lot of external notions smuggled in 
and we didn't catch it, which again is where we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. Not just reading it, looking at the words on the page, checking the box for the day. Hey, I got my reading plan uh, covered. I'm on track to finish the Bible this year. Yeah, but did you did you chew on it? Did you grapple with it? Chapter 9 is a good one and important as well. Chapter 10, is God all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise? This one has to do with his omnipotence, omniscience, and omnisapience. And I'll, I'll admit, I actually was unfamiliar with, I was probably just not paying attention, in uh, Bible college at Cedarville University and then Liberty University. But I don't remember ever hearing about God's omnisapience. I had to look it up. But all omnisapience means is that God is all wise. So he's not just omniscient. That one I knew. He's not just all-knowing. He is all-wise. So he doesn't just know trivia. Like He's not just really, really good at jeopardy. He is omnisapient, which is to say he is all-wise. He understands the connection between all of these facts and truths intimately because he put these things together sovereignly. That's an important, an important and mind-boggling distinction between the creator and us. He is all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful, and we are finite in all of those things. At best, we are finite in our wisdom, knowledge, and power. Chapter 11, can God be both holy and loving? This one has to do with his righteousness, his goodness, and his love. Can God be both holy and loving? And sadly, tragically, this one, I worry, is very much at the root of the trouble with Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. In wanting to make Jesus seem far more approachable, God's holiness is compromised, and the distinction between creator and created is blurred to make Christ seem more approachable, more accessible is the term that Dane Ortland uses. As if God being holy interferes with his being loving. Can we be comforted by the fact that he is set apart? I think so. I very much think so. In fact, I don't think we can be comforted if God is not set apart. If he is just like us, well then, why do I put my trust in God? Why don't I just put my trust in myself? I can see myself. I know myself. If God's just like me, well then, why don't I just do it myself? Right? And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people conclude. That's exactly why they depend on themselves. They lean on their own understanding because they have the wrong idea of God's holiness. They don't have a high regard for God's holiness. Also, too, I would say it's interesting to me that Matthew Barrett spends a lot of time dealing with a certain German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. And I had never heard, there's a lot of things I'm just being introduced to as I'm trying to dig in and research more, but I had never heard of Jürgen Moltmann. And now I know a bit more about him. Apparently, he was kind of a big deal. Post-World War II, German philosopher, theologian, uh, philosopher first, and subsequently theologian, whatever else you may read, because he's smuggling in his philosophy 
and then doing his theology accordingly. It's not for no reason that through the centuries of the church, theology was regarded as the queen of the sciences. Philosophy was seen as subordinate, and it needed to be undertaken towards the end of supporting and shoring up our theological efforts, but not philosophy first, and then we do theology so as to confirm our philosophical presuppositions, especially if some of the philosophers you're getting your philosophy from are vain human philosophy proponents, which is very much the case with Jürgen Moltmann, unfortunately. Dane Ortland quotes Moltmann in passing at a certain point, and then I ended up going and doing some research trying to figure out, okay, who is this guy? What else is he saying? Because it's a curious quote, and there's no caveat. There's no further explanation on who the guy is. He's just mentioned briefly, and then we move on. But in looking him up and then reading Matthew Barrett's book here, I am thinking to myself, man, there's a lot. There's a lot that is addressed here. There's a lot that's dealt with here in Matthew Barrett's book when he is addressing Moltmann, which also just so happens to address what the big issue is with gentle and lowly, as I see it. And now what I'm not doing, and this is a very important point to make, what I'm not doing is saying, aha, guilt by association. (laughs) Dane Ortland quotes Jürgen Moltmann, and therefore, if I can find something on Jürgen Moltmann, then therefore I can justify writing off Dane Ortland. No, actually, it's a little more interesting than that. Hang in there. Stay with me. What I think in learning about Moltmann's theology and how influential he's been, he's been the best kept secret in theology, it looks like. He's got honorary degrees from universities all over the world in large part because he is espousing a very uh, therapeutic to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the sage, liberal theology. What I think has happened is that Dane Ortland is more familiar with Moltmann than he lets on in Gentle and Lowly, and that Moltmann's theology is being fleshed out in more of a layperson's uh, format in Gentle and Lowly. And so this question of can God be both holy and loving is actually very, very central to the the trouble with uh, Jürgen Moltmann and his theology, because he wants to de-emphasize the holiness and the power and the authority of God in the interest of promoting the loving kindness of God. And we see that everywhere. We see it everywhere in mainstream, popular, Christian mainstream, Christian popular expressions. An emphasis on the loving, a de-emphasis on the holy. And if you start talking about God's holiness in a way that disapproves of how others are talking about God or relating to God or relating to one another or living their lives, well, then you're not being loving, right? There's an inverse proportion between how much you talk about holiness and how much you talk about love. And that ought not to be. That ought not to be. But if we believe it wrongly about God, we will also believe it wrongly about ourselves. We will will read all of scripture amiss and we will be in some very real trouble. Some very real trouble. 
God has to be holy and set apart. And if we're not going to regard him as holy, then I'm sorry, like we, we don't have Christianity. We just don't. Yes, absolutely. Embrace his mercy, his kindness, his love towards those who are his own. Be comforted by those things, but not in any degree, to any extent whatsoever, can we afford to water down or marginalize or set aside a high view for God's holiness in the process. If we're doing that, we lose both and. We lose both and. We get no benefit from the loving kindness of God, and we're treating him in an unholy way. Can't do that. Finally, chapter 12 in Matthew Barrett's book, The Undomesticated Attributes of God Indeed. (laughs) Should God be jealous for his own glory? Isn't that kind of conceited? Isn't that kind of, oh, I don't know, narcissistic? Well, here's the thing. If we're asking that question, it may just indicate exactly the concern that we have thought too much of God as being just like us. We have we don't have an insufficient amount of humanizing God and making him accessible. No, actually, we have made a false God in our minds and in our rhetoric, and he is so accessible that it makes no sense to us whatsoever that he has glory, that his glory is his primary motivation, that it is absolutely an inseparable pursuit. He cannot be who he is and neglect his glory. He cannot be who he is and neglect being jealous for his glory. These are two halves of the same coin. Everything rightfully belongs to God. That's the proper way to look at it, by the way. Not that God is the universe, not that God is in everything and everything is in God, but rather that everything belongs to God. Everything was made by God. Everything is for God. Everything belongs to God. And as such, when we misuse, misappropriate, abuse, not only what God has made by by extension, the God who made everything for a good purpose, when we act in a rebellious way against God with what he's given us, it is totally appropriate for God to be jealous. So briefly, a couple of touch points, miscellaneous in no particular order, for starters. Only a Sith deals in absolutes, Obi-Wan Kenobi says. (laughs) In Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, which we just watched last night while we ate pizza, it was family movie night. Only a Sith deals in absolutes, which is, I hate that line. Oh, I hate that line so bad. That line needs to die in a fire. Uh, It was just awful because it's it's self-defeating, right? Like only a Sith deals in absolutes. Well, you just made an absolute statement. Does that make you a Sith, Obi-Wan Kenobi? I guess it's all the same. Maybe that was the point of the line. I don't know, but it's a dumb line and disappointing. So here, chock full of absolute statements is Matthew Barrett's book. And it is not evil, and it is not a Sith Lord's doing. God is absolute. His truth is absolute. His claim on us is absolute. His justice, his mercy, his love, his goodness, his holiness, 
his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, all absolute. So that's point number one. Point number two, I would draw your attention to H.L. Mencken's obituary for J. Gresham Machen. H.L. Mencken was an atheist. He and J. Gresham Machen could not have disagreed more on God. H.L. Mencken, nevertheless, wrote a glowing obituary for J. Gresham Machen when J. Gresham Machen passed away about a century ago. And one of the things that Mencken said he really admired was that Machen approached theology properly, which is high praise. He said, you can't just take what parts of it you like and leave the rest like you're reading a newspaper. It doesn't work that way. It's either all true completely or none of it is. And of course, H.L. Mencken held the view that none of it was, but he admired that the other possibility is that all of it's true. This Christianity stuff is either all true or it's not true at all. And J. Gresham Machen was opposed to liberal theology, which I think this work by Matthew Barrett is in the vein of Machen's legacy. Much in that vein, updated for our time and the challenges that are specific to our time as opposed to a century ago. But Machen had it right. It's either all or nothing. You can't just pick and choose which of God's attributes you like, which you'll leave, what of God's promises you like, and which you'll leave. You just can't do it. Also, what comes to mind is Herman Bavink, who is referenced often, although the narrator pronounces his name oddly. Herman Bavink. Bavink. It's <laughs> just funny. But Herman Bavink talks about positivist science as opposed to Christian science. The Christian philosophy of science is a book I had the honor of helping to edit and proofread, uh, which is also going to be available for the first time in English in the coming months, also from Refcon Press. But positivist science assumes that our ancestors, the further back you go, were more and more primitive, and they just couldn't understand how the universe really works because they didn't have the scientific method. They didn't have our instruments. And so they just made up these uh, very superstitious explanations for everything. Whereas the Christian says, no, actually, if anything, things were much better closer to when God created us and the effects of sin over time have eroded our original goodness as a race and the original goodness of creation But I think it's important to see in liberal theologian challenges to historic Orthodox positions on the character of God. I think it's important to see a kind of positivistic veneer and uh, layer to the theology that is done so wrongly by the likes of Jürgen Moltmann. There's a positivistic we're better than all previous generations kind of assumption, almost like we're saying to Luther and Calvin and all the rest, hold my beer. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. On this note, I think what we recognize more readily as evolutionary assumptions in other sciences are also at the root here with regards to theology. Only instead of seeing ourselves 
as evolved. We're not content to only see ourselves as evolved and to thereby diminish the credit rightfully belonging to God for having created us. No, we want to go from that affront to an even worse affront and suggest that God is evolving. More or less, that's what you get when you say that God is in time instead of timeless and eternal. When you want to say that God is in the universe, in everything, and everything is in God, getting dangerously close to pantheism. When you want to suggest that God depends on us, that he needs us, or that he changes, or that he is made up of parts, you are getting closer and closer to this evolutionary view of God, wherein, if you can imagine it, we would say to God, oh, you know what? I really appreciate how far you've come since the Old Testament. You're just, man, I can really tell you're trying and you're doing, you're doing great. Keep it up. Keep up the good work, God. Heaven help us. That's dangerous. Very dangerous. Also thoroughly progressive. And it is born of the zeitgeist with a view to flattering and affirming and building up the spirit of this age. Pure and simple. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones regarding superficiality from his study in the Sermon on the Mount. Our life as Christians, individual and corporate, from his day, and I would say even more to this day, is characterized by superficiality because we don't take the Bible seriously. We don't let it speak to us and transform us. We want to go to it and transform it. And that is, again, hubris in the extreme. It also produces anxiety and depression. It makes us anxious, and rightfully so, because we should be (laughs) fearing him who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Yeah, you should be anxious, but you don't have too much. You have too little. You have too little fear of God. That's why your theology is such as it is, that you would believe the contrary of these points here. Also, too, if you're depressed, well, go figure. Your view of God is such that he is not able to save. You want to believe that he saves, but your view of God is not of a God who would be able to save you. Plain and simple. And that's tragic. No wonder you're depressed. No wonder you're anxious if we have not, we've not been taught rightly these things, I think. A great many of us have not been taught rightly these things with regards to the character of God. We maybe accidentally alternate back and forth between a proper view that is biblical and historically orthodox and improper views, but there is definitely a push against believing rightly about God. Just like there's a push against believing rightly about ourselves, there's a push even harder against rightly believing about God because all of the above believe and agree what we believe about God has a huge effect on what we believe about ourselves and one another and how then we shall live. Another thing I would say here too is to make God tame, to domesticate him, if you will, is the equivalent of saying peace, peace when there is no peace. You can't have peace with a God of your own imagination. Or maybe what we should say is saying peace, peace 
when there is no peace is about as close as you come, about as close as you can get to having peace with God and one another. But in short, I would recommend this book by Matthew Barrett. It is an interesting read. It is well-written. I think it is (laughs) accessible. Uh, Very heady stuff. And again, if you come to it and you find yourself scratching your head and just like, oh man, I don't even know what to make of this. You're not alone. We are all together as finite creatures in that same boat. The big thing is, can we understand what it is that God wants us to understand about him and think rightly and relate rightly to God in faith and have the full assurance of our salvation and think rightly about what it is that we've been given in salvation by a all-powerful, holy, righteous, good, loving, and wise Father who loves us. Check it out. Give it a read. You won't be sorry you did. Now, in closing, one last little cherry on top for this episode. I want to refer back to something that came up in yesterday's episode, episode 408, where we were talking about, well, we were talking about a Southern Poverty Law Center uh, poll of Democrats and Republicans, men and women, older than 50 and also younger than 50. And would they approve of assassinating political leaders who they felt were harming the United States of America or, and I quote, our democracy? Now, you have probably heard often the same phrasing I have heard, which is that our democracy is being threatened by Republicans doing this. Republicans want to pass election reform legislation that will eliminate avenues for potential fraud, which were exploited in 2020, namely mail-in voting, no requirement for identification, et cetera, et cetera. The use of Dominion voting machines, for instance, which why not just get rid of them, right? Why not just spare the headache? If there's nothing fishy there, then just get rid of the voting machines that can be tampered with and go with something that has a unique encrypted end-to-end blockchain encrypted security feature where we know that only People who are legally allowed to vote in our country's elections have voted. They have only voted once. Their vote was counted if it was supposed to be counted, and it was not counted if it was not supposed to be counted. Republicans try to get that stuff legislated, enacted, enforced, and Democrats, go figure, say that our democracy is under fire. So also, if you try and adhere to a traditionalist view of the Constitution, particularly the Second Amendment to the Constitution, and you therefore push back against efforts to take away your guns, eliminate your ability to get firearms or ammunition or parts for guns, trying to make illegal you owning firearms is about as opposite the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. I didn't write it. It is in our Constitution. 
But when Republicans say, nope, absolutely, you cannot infringe on our Second Amendment rights with good reason. Just look at what Democrats do in places where there is no right to self-defense. Democrats, again, say such and such is a threat to their democracy, to our democracy. But it's important to note that there is a difference. There's an important difference between pure democracy on the one hand and a republic, specifically a constitutional republic. In a democracy, the majority rules. If the majority decides they want something that belongs rightfully to you, they take it. They take a vote and they take what you've got that they want. Mob justice can carry the day so long as the eyes have it. In a pure democracy, they just change the rules to whatever seems good to them in the moment. And you, if you are in the minority and you don't get much more of a minority than being one individual against the mob, but if you're in the minority, your rights can routinely, consistently, again and again, be trampled on. So you don't want pure democracy. All the kids in the neighborhood like your bike. And they take a vote and they decide that's not your bike anymore. Now it's our bike. No. In a republic, by contrast, your bike is your property. You don't owe it to anyone. They have no right to it. They have no claim on it. It doesn't matter how many of them want your bike. That is your bike and it can't be taken without your say-so, without your permission, by the law. Letter of the law says that's your private property. Everybody else, leave it alone. Stay off. America is not a democracy. <clears throat> America is a constitutional republic. Democrats who chatter incessantly about threats to our democracy want to forget that this is a constitutional republic, and they want us to forget, more to the point. The Constitution is supposed to be a protection for us against being trampled on by aggressive minorities or the majority. It's supposed to be a protection against the rich who would prey on the poor and the vulnerable. It's also a protection for those who have wealth against the lazy, the covetous, the unscrupulous, the slanderous, who would try to destroy their wealth. Our constitution is a protection of the people, for that matter, from being trampled on by their government. It is a commitment. It's a covenant. It is our law. In a republic, you are protected against the majority by constitutional law. Someone can't just come into your neighborhood and get everybody all riled up with smooth-sounding words and convince everyone that your house is bigger than you need it to be. It's nicer than you need it to be. Hey, why do you have a pool and I don't? I think that needs to be a community pool now. We're all going to take a vote. No. In a republic, you are protected from the majority by law, according to the Constitution. We weren't given a democracy. We inherited a constitutional republic, and we should want to preserve it. I think also, interestingly enough, too, if you read Oz Guinness's 
Magna Carta of Humanity. He presents ancient Israel as a republic by God's say-so. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. God gave the Israelites the law through Moses, thus making them a nation of laws. Not a nation first and foremost ruled by men, but a nation of laws administered, interpreted, executed by men under God. And to this point, with regards again to Matthew Barrett and his book on theology, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God, whether we believe that God is righteous, good, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, unchanging, matters immensely to our political discussions and positions and all our personal choices, all of our relationships. So we need to get it right. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.